Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. Good morning and welcome to Bodies and Souls. Your host for today is Rifki Boyarski. Today we have um, a new series starting. We're going to be discussing Jewish people um, throughout the ages and actually really not so long ago because all of the people that we have lined up are are fairly young. Um, And we're going to talk about what persecution meant what persecution means, what being a light in the midst of darkness means. We're going to talk about um, continuing to live in the most elevated way, even when things are not as elevated and bright and shiny as they should be and could be. So today we have, and I think this is, before we actually introduce our guest today, I think this is a very timely discussion because for a long time, we kind of like thought that we were living the dream, right? We, we weren't living with persecution and we weren't living with hatred and we weren't living with tri- like trials and tribulations for sure here in the United States. And we felt very blessed. And then October 7th happened and it kind of brought into light that the Haldar Vidar, right? In every single generation, I'm they, they come and they and they challenge us and they they seek to challenge our way of life and I want to talk to several women who've gone through deeply personal um journeys uh, and and let it shed light into our everyday existence today in a post October 7th world and how we could bring these these women and the lessons that they've learned into our day-to-day now so without further ado Um, Our guest today is Rivka Sirota. Um, Rivka actually shared part of what we're going to be discussing around my Shabbos table months ago. And as soon as I heard, and my kids all stopped in their place and listened to Rivka, I said, wait, 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 these are stories that we think is like four generations uh, above us, three generations. And Rivka's not that much older than we are. So I want to talk to Rivka about her life journey. So Rifka, before we start, tell us a little bit about what you're doing today um, and then take us back to where your story starts. So today we live in Denver, Colorado. We are the emissaries of the of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, Nachman Schneerson, sent us here in 1980. And we work here with, with the Russian community. I came from Russia in 1971 to Israel. And um, in Russia, when we lived the Jewish life, we had a Chabadus in that house, but it was all a secret under the table, so to speak. We lived as from Jews. And outside, the people were not allowed to know that we live a Jewish life because it was against the law. It was communism then in the 60s. And um, you're not allowed to practice any any religion. For sure, not Jewish. So when I was a child in the 60s, we had to go to school. It was illegal to homeschool like here. People could homeschool. And um, the Russian authorities would come to my parents and tell them you have a child this age. And because they have records that was born this year. And they say, how come they're not in school? They're not enrolled in any school. So my parents tried to delay us from going to school because it would mean a lot of trouble not going on Shabbos and holidays. And those years, school in Russia was from Monday to Saturday to Shabbos. Only one day off was Sunday. So our parents sent us to all different schools. 
uh, all our girls, our sisters, we went to morning school. I went to morning school. My sister went to afternoon school. My other sister went to evening school. They shouldn't see that every single Shabbos, all the girls from the same family, from the Zalson's family, get sick because we didn't go to school every Shabbos or every Yomte. So Shabbos in our house was a minion, like 20, 30 people that my father and my mother ran. And when the meeting was over about 12.30, we had a knock on our window because the principal from the school would knock on the door and on the window and ask my father, how come we didn't go to school? We would jump right to bed, pretending we were sick, and my father would tell them, I don't know what kind of excuse. My mother had to uh, go to the doctor and um, get notes that we needed an extra day off a week. And that's why we didn't go to school on Shabbos, supposedly. So they were also smart. They said, why don't you stay home on Wednesday? How come you need to stay home on Shabbos? And my mother told him, my husband is home this day, so I want him to spend time with the kids. Also, my mother went to the doctors and took notes that we need an extra day off for our rest, for our mental health. And my mother constantly brought them presents, bribed them to keep them quiet not to make trouble. Uh, but I remember when I was going home one Friday afternoon when I was leaving school, the teacher asked me, what excuse are you going to bring me that Monday that tomorrow you're not going to be in school? They already knew that we Orthodox Jews or they were suspecting. Uh, and I remember when my father took me to school on the bike every morning, he told me, you have to be an excellent student. You have to get all the grades A because they're going to say, because you miss one day a week, every single week, that's why you can be excellent. So we had to work very hard and we like school, we like learning, but we didn't like the education they gave us. Every morning in school, we had to sing a song about Lenin. They made him like into a geshke, like an idol that we had to sing, that we wake up in the morning and this picture smiles at us. Like, they were all brainwashing the kids that there is no God. And everybody knows the joke. One time the teacher in Russia was saying, you see the desk? Yes, there is a desk. You see the chair? There is a chair. You see a student? There is a student. <coughs> you don't see God means there is no God. So one Jewish boy stood up and said, Mora, can I say something? And she said, yes. Said, Do you see the teacher? Yeah. You see her head? Yeah. Do you see her brains? No. That means she has no brains. So a Jewish kid <laughs> tried to tell the other kids that if you don't see something, doesn't mean it's not there. I remember it just life in Russia was very um, stressful, I would say. Because besides our home, there was a shul. My parents also kept a secret yeshiva. So we, the girls, went to school. My brother, now he's a hatchlich in Toronto, Rabbi Yosef Zaltzman, a hatchlich of the Russian community. He has like 10 rabbis working for him. He never went to school because it's harder for a boy. He was the oldest. He was supposed to go to school before us, but it's harder for a boy to send to school because they can... Um, with a yarmulke, they can, where it is. So my parents sent it to a different city in Tashkent. We used to live in Samarkand, and somebody had a yeshiva there in somebody's home, and he was like 10 years old. And it was very hard for him. He was missing home a lot. And after a while, he called my parents, and he said, 
If you don't bring me home, I'm just going to walk. And it's three hours flight. My parents brought him home and they decided they have to open our own yeshiva in our home. And that's how our yeshiva at home was funded. Uh, my parents found tons of boys from Ukraine and Russia, from the neighborhood and from far away. We had like about 20 boys that on top of our six kids my mother was raising. My mother became a mother of our 20 teenage boys. And they all lived in that house. We had like a one big room that all the boys stayed there, lived there. And my father got them tutors. And it was a yeshiva in that house. So we were like raised in the yeshiva environment, the yeshiva environment. Uh, my father was for bringing with them. So it was very different. Like when we came home, we were open Jews. When we came to school, we were hidden Jews. Pesach Holomoy, we went to school with, with uh, matzah sandwiches. One time in the afternoon, we used to go get music lessons. I learned how to play piano in Israel, learn how to play accordion. So one time I didn't lock the door and the neighbors, the Russians were always after us. So the door, the gate was not locked to the front yard and they came in and my sister was home. She gave a sign to all the Shiva boys to hide. We had like in a in the big backyard. It was like a um, garage, and this is where the boys were learning. So they all went to hide. There was like a big pit for the potatoes for the winter. They were all hiding in the pit, and she covered it. They were all, you know, and then he walked in the room. So it was like a room. It was like a big garage. It was like a big room. It was like a shiva. There was hamashim and sedurim on the table. And he asked her, what is this? And she knew to hold it upside down, pretend she can read it. But we knew how to read it because my mother was teaching us after school how to read Hebrew and understand Hebrew. And she said, oh, it's my old grandfather's books. So it's not your fault you're born Jewish. As long as you don't teach it to your kids, then you're fine. Um, he looked around, he snooped around, then he left. And then my mother never told this story to my father because he would be very worried that they're after us. It's like a lot of stress because if they find my father, if they catch him, that he's doing a big crime, that he's teaching not just his kids, but other people, which you're not allowed to practice or teach. Here you practice and you teach. So she didn't want to worry him, so she didn't tell him. What was the big deal, just for clarity? What was the big deal? I mean, like communism, okay, it's hard, right? So you weren't allowed to uh, go to a Jewish school. You went to a public school. But what what was, just just so we understand the full picture of what, like, and this is in the 1960s, it's not in the 1920s, right? This is like, what what was the picture like for your family? Like, had someone found out about what they were doing? And what were the options for them? If they found out my parents were doing, they would send them to Siberia and would be the end of them because it's a big crime against the government. So it was very big stress for my parents. What would they have done with the kids? Would they have taken the kid, like sent the kids also to Siberia or like sent the kids to other? They probably take the kids to their ministries. And it was it was very risky for my parents. They felt like their life is on the line, but this, they kept kind of, the atmosphere of snafish, they risk their life every day by teaching us and teaching other kids and having minion in the house. And when they, when they would leave them, at home, after the minion, they will, each one will walk like 20 minutes apart. They should not see that a bunch of Jews living there means they have an organized religion there. 
which was not allowed to. It was like a very scary, risky time that we lived under. So my parents felt it more. We we just knew it's not, this is not right. What did you do about kosher food? Like, obviously, you didn't go to the local kosher supermarket. So what was... What was there the- was no kosher supermarket. So <laughs> what we did, there was no kosher Jewish school. So my parents, my father asked my uncle to come after school. They were teaching us Chumash. And the translation, my mother taught us to read and write in Hebrew and also the Hebrew language. We had a sheikhat come to our house once a month and he would sheikhat like a cow, a lot of chickens. And then we would divide it by all the families who kept kosher, who kept who, who were practicing to be from under the table. And the story was my mother was standing outside by the faucet and she was kashering she was rinsing the meat. She was cashering the meat. And she sees one of the people who came. It was around 4 o'clock. So everybody's standing in And we had a big sunroom. It was like open window. It's like the whole room The whole room was from w- windows. So if she walked another 50 steps, she would see them standing in And my mother can't make the move because then Shmanesra, she ran with the rope quick. Says, oh, wishes dog here, wishes dog. Quick, go back. And she locked the door behind her. Someone came in while she was in the middle of, of kashering the meat. Someone came into the yard? Yeah, the teacher, my sister didn't go to school that day. So she, the, the teacher decided to pay a visit. So she was coming into the backyard, into that house to visit my mother and speak, what's going on, what's going on. But my mother saw her, she kind of pushed her away and locked the door. Because she wanted to protect all the people inside from her. Because if she was telling over the news what she saw, my parents' life would be in danger. So my mother ran in and she quick changed because she was in a house coat and took her and took her far away from the home, like blocks and blocks in the center of the city, just to take her away. So when the people finished downing and each one would take like an hour or more to leave the house because... They need to take 20 minutes apart until everybody leaves. So she didn't want them to see people leaving the minions. So she realized the skirt is on the wrong side of the <laughs> upside down. But she took her far away from home just to keep the people in davening safe. One time it's in Hosea in our house. So they were dancing till four o'clock in the morning. The next morning they were asking my mother, so what was so noisy last night? People were singing. What were you guys doing? And my mother said, oh, and my husband had a birthday and his friends came over. So they were celebrating. Like everything had to be very oh, like kosher. You can't say he had anything religious to do. My brother, legally, he was not even in the city. He like gave him a different name. Because if he played in the backyard and called his name, the neighbors were constantly snooping and listening. And they knew, they would check that he's not enrolled in a public school. There was a big crime. So legally, he was in a different city going to school there, but he was hiding like for months and months and years, he didn't leave the house. They shouldn't see him because they were like after checking. It was very risky and very scary for us. It's a story of religious freedom, like a lack of religious freedom. But in addition to the lack of like religious freedom and the lack of the ability to practice openly as Yiddin and to practice openly as from Yiddin, there was also an element of fight like, physical insecurity right because um 
one of times my brother, when we did go out at night or to visit his friend, he came home all beaten with a red face and blood because they were just calling him rigid, like means dirty Jew, and beat him up just for the sake of it. I remember I was walking home one time because we walked home back from school like half an hour. It was safe to walk home, but on the other side of the street, there was some guy called Zid, like that also means a dirty Jew. We were scared. We walk home fast. It was also safety because once they know you're doing something unilateral, it can hurt your physical safety as well, not just the spiritual. Be free, you know, free to practice your Yiddishkeit. Was there indoctrination in the schools, like anti-Jewish thoughts that were the kids were taught routinely in the public schools that you were going to? Like, and did you as a child feel like unsafe in the playground? Like I know today um, I have a friend who's living in Vienna and her, she actually um, lives in a community without a Jewish school and her kids go to a public school. And just yesterday she was telling me that her six-year-old was beaten up for being Jewish. So I wonder if like, the parallel of that, like you're a child, obviously a Jewish child, I think. Did, did your friends know you were Jewish? Did you have friends in school? Like if you were that separate, like as a child growing up in that environment, what was your experience like? I don't think I had friends, friends. I, I just went to school because I had to go to school. Obviously, I learned some secular subjects, but I didn't keep them as friends. They were Russian. They were not Jewish. They were Muslim, Russian. They were regular Christians. They were very pro-Russian. Some I remember the teacher was asking, who are you and who are you? And one beautiful girl, she said, I am Uzbek, which is a Russian Muslim. She said, no, you're Christian. You're Russian. Because the Christian was supposed to be a better race than the Muslims. And you can't be Muslim. I, I was not friends with them. I knew better than that. I just did school and went home. And I was friends with my brothers and sisters people in the, in the community that were from in our cousins, you know, that we got to get on Chavez. I remember one time I didn't raise my hand. I spoke out of line or something like without asking permission. She was just like, grab me out of my seat and throw me in the corner in front of the whole class. There was like 40 kids in the class, gigantic classroom. Yeah. They were not making you feel good. There were, um, we had to wear when you were in, in the beginning, younger grades, you had to wear like a star with a means you're a communist, like with the Lenin picture. When you're old, you had to wear like a red tie. It shows that you're a pioneer of communism. And when we came home, my brother would burn it on the fire <laughs> when we took it off. <laughs> so, no, they're not allowed in my house. They burned it up. Kids want friends. They want to feel accepted in their social, you know, situations. You clearly were the other person there. And then you're coming home and, you know, there's all these other feelings. Like, what did that do for you? I mean, I'm sure you thought about this as an adult, raising your own children and seeing, you know, how important the social aspect of this is for a child's psyche. In Russia, we could we weren't allowed to do anything. So we were stronger in being thrown because that's what the going was pushing us towards. You know what I mean? Um, here, when my kids were raised, it's more free, and there's a lot of choices that they could do, but we brought them up brought them up in such a way that they know the right thing to do, even there's a lot of choices they pick up the, they pick up on the right choice to do. And we push the kids to be friends. Of course, it's a very big 
they send them to be bnos and to be leaders and to do counselors and everything like that, because that's a big fact in a kid's psyche. I don't know, in Russia, I guess we knew this is wrong. We knew they're not our friends. We kind of live a double life in Russia. In school, we were just people. And at home, we were from Eden, you know? Like I said, we had cousins and other from people that live the same life as us, that we were close, but um, we didn't see them every day. How many other from people lived in Tash in Samarkand? It was Samarkand, right? Yeah. Also, there is a fam. There are a lot of our families lived in the same way. If they they would come to Armenian, Shabbos, yeah, the kids lived in the same way. They also would go to school, but they weren't they weren't friends there with them. A lot of families like this in in Samarkand, like ten or twenty families. That's that a lot friends. of families. Ten or twenty is not yeah. a lot. That's very little. So you feel like. You still are not part of this like large community. 10 or 20 families is still rather small. Right. Because these families, we can't tell everybody that we're from under the table. Some, even Jews, you couldn't trust because they're going to tell on you. So we only trusted, we were only very close to the people who were from in their home who lived the same life as us. Um, Sometimes I remember my father said he, could, he didn't even tell my grandfather his father about the yeshiva because it was so risky. You know who's listening, you know who's talking, you know. There was a very big secret. So your grandfather did not know that there was a yeshiva in your home? Eventually he found out. He knew because when they came to check on us, my father transferred the yeshiva to my grandfather's house for a few days. They came to, <laughs> they came to investigate and were checking and nobody was there because we... With all the boys in that house, they had to be transferred at night, and they dressed up. And okay, so um, to, as a college teacher, I have to ask, what about mikvah? So mikvah, there is it. Is it really as dramatic as it sounds? Like they made a hole in the water and they went in the ice. That's my mother went in the ice in the winter. So when they just got married, they got married in Samarkand because my my father's parents. When they're after they were born in Kharkov, they went to Samarkand during the World War II. They stayed there. And when my parents got married in Samarkand, they went to Dushanbe for two years. So there was no mikvah. So my mother said that she would go to the rivers and it was very cold in the in this in the winter to go in the ocean. It was like very scary. There could be an animal. And she told my father, I can't do it anymore. We have to build a mikvah. So my father was fundraising for a lot of money and they build a mikvah in um Dushanbe and its functions till today and people that live there go there and I heard that and then when we moved to Samarkand later two years after they moved to Samarkand and the house that I remember I envisioned it I could see every room the backyard it's like engraved in my family but I would never want to go back there like I don't have good feelings to Russia and my kids said I want to go live in Russia I said absolutely not <laughs> Anyway, we had a gigantic, my parents built a gigantic pool in our backyard. It was one very deep and one more shallow for kids, and it was attached. So we knew where we had to, in the summer, we would make races swimming from one end to the other end, and who would go first. In the Every Shabbos morning, my, my father planted evergreen trees, and every Shabbos morning, he said we should stay in the house, not go to the backyard, because before the meeting, all the men would go to the mikvah. And every evening when my mother would take ladies would come and they, she would take him to, to the pool, mikvah. This was our mikvah. So this it was, was a kosher mikvah disguised as a pool. 
disguised as a pool. Yeah, it was it very wasn't, big. It wasn't and just rainwater. an average pool. It was built as a mikvah, just the size of a pool. Yeah, the very big, very big. Yeah. So some people over there were tabling, some people drowned and were saved. You know, they um, tabling and they lost control because one part was very deep. And his grandfather, his grandson was watching him and he jumped in and he pulled him out. He was saved, like cousin families. Yeah, Mikva was the pool that my parents built. But after my mother had a lot of years trauma, or before even the Mikva in Dusanbe, that she couldn't, until they were building it, she couldn't go anymore in the ocean. So she would go on a train like for two days, 36 hours. To a different city to Moscow, she would go to the mikvah, then she would sleep over in the hotel and take the train to go two days back um, until they had a real mikvah that you could use. How many children were in your family? So we had seven children, six in Russia, in Israel, one more were born. My youngest brother is now in Pedro, New Jersey. He's working with my father in Shlichus. How old were you when you went to Israel? I was 13 years old. I remember my bas mitzvah was in Russia. Late at night, all aunts, cousins, everybody came. My mother made a lot of food and everybody was dancing and celebrating. And yeah, so then I went to Israel. I did seventh, eighth grade middle school, high school in Bishrif and Kfar Chabad, two years seminary. And then I went to New York to Lubavitch Rebbe. But I went to the Rebbe right away the first summer when we moved to New to Israel. It was in July. And for Elo in August, I already went to the Rebbe for Tishrei. So I remember the first time I went to Yechidas of the Rebbe when I was 13 years old. I, you know, I remember standing in line and saying, kill him, like for a couple hours before we went in. And then I went myself. I, re- I remember the Rebbe made me feel so good and gave me brachas. You should go Michael, Michael, you should go from strength to strength in everything, in Gashmis and Ruknis. I felt like the Rebbe gave me kachas to continue and do. Then when I finished school, like almost every year or so, I went to the Rebbe for Tishrei. When I finished seminary, I went to the Rebbe again. And then I asked the Rebbe if I should go back. The Rebbe said I should stay. And I was looking for a job to start teaching because I finished my seminary, practice teaching in seminary, everything. And I got my first job in Morrison, New Jersey. I was teaching in a hater there, preschool, kindergarten, first grade. And for a couple months, and then they were coming to me from Alotaira. Every night they were calling me that they want to open a new class in honor of your Shvadur. I told the rabbi they're opening a new class so that Russian kids from Brighton Beach and they want me to come and teach. I said, I just signed a contract with them. I'm already all busy. They called me for two months every night and I was living with my aunt, my mother's sister, Miriam Kogan, in her house. And she said, look, you're leaving 5.30 in the morning. It's still dark in the winter. You're coming 7.30 at night. It's already dark. You don't have a life. Why don't you come work here in New York? So you'll be able to leave 8 o'clock. You'll be home at 4 o'clock. You'll at least see the sunlight right. in the winter. So after a while, I took that job. And I was teaching in the Lotero, a Russian class on East New York. Yeah. They just came out of Russia. They didn't know any English. Was teaching them all the love, Yiddish, they were like my own kids, teaching them in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in Russian, in English, all the languages. That's so cute. So uh, now, if we forward to today, today you're, you know, Baruch Hashem, a Babi, a mother of many children. Um, you're running a very successful, beautiful, wonderful, you know, 
school of your own and you're on shlachos and you're you have a nice comfortable beautiful holy life fast forward straight to like the times that we find ourselves in now do you see any parallels or lessons that women can learn today from the experiences that you had as a child growing up in russia are there have we become desensitized to the lessons that jews have lived with throughout all the years do we need to you know how do we focus and really i don't know if you could say make the most out of this because there's nothing good like we need mashiach and that's really where it's at but are there lessons that we should learn based on your own personal life experience so when i was a child they were brainwashing me about lenin and before there was stalin afterwards and he wanted to kill all the jews and he didn't let them to be free and Lenin is not here today. Stalin is not here today. All the Eden are here, flourishing, having kids, having grandkids, having Jewish mothers, sending kids to Hebrew schools, to Jewish schools. We will be there forever. We have to know, be very strong, keep our mitzvahs. And because we were brought up in a Hasidic environment, like my parents got it from their parents, because my grandparents were shluchim of the Friedrich Rebbe, of the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, the, the previous Rebbe in Russia, and they got it from their own parents that we have to do what Hashem wants us to do. We have to remember we're Eden and we always will win. We always will prevail. We have to do the mitzvahs and um, the Hasidushka really keeps us alive with the mitzvahs. And there will always be Aesop, son of Yaakov. And we are like a sheep among 70 wolves and Hashem will always protect us. And look what they try to do with us. It, unfortunately, we're familiar to this history that we're going through now with the Holocaust, with the pogroms in Russia. And this Israel, what was, it was like a pogrom, the worst pogrom ever been. Hashem wants us to stay true to the mitzvahs and stay strong. And we will win. That's very interesting. So my great-grandfather, we called him Papa. He came from Russia um, after the pogroms, like in the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, um, his father um, was a frumyid. He came with 10 children to the United States. He died shortly afterwards. The kids were not from, nobody Nobody ended up from. So what's very interesting to me is a lot of times when, when Yidin suffered, either they were really, really strong, um, like your parents were, or they as- attempted to assimilate in the hopes that then we'll be safe, then we'll be okay, then nobody will come and get to us. Obviously, you know, Papa obviously held on to his, you know, Jewish identity, because all of his, almost all of his descendants now are from Yidin. I wonder, like, what it is that in this particular conflict, almost across the board, everyone's actively trying to connect. And I think that this is actually really unique. You said, like, there's parallels to every single generation where, people stood up and tried to destroy us, but there were certain portions of the population that continued to connect to the Yiddish guide and certain portions that went away. But I think in this particular conflict, almost across the board, Jews are really trying to connect to their Judaism in, in a very real way. And I think that that almost makes this unique. Not everybody could stand. It's very hard. Nisoyen, it's very hard experiment to stand, to be able to be from when people persecute you. So a lot of people during the Holocaust also thought if they're not from, they don't give the mitzvahs, the Nazis will leave them alone. But unfortunately, they killed all the Jews, even they weren't from, just because their Jewish blood on them. That's a very good topic that you touched because I think it's it's important 
to have the warmth and the excitement of Hasidic cried because my grandfather, my father's father, Zayda Avram Zaltzman, when he was a child, he his mother sent him to Yeshiva when he was 10 years old. And this was the um, the Rebbe Arashab Yeshiva, Rebbe Maharash Yeshiva. And he he was, they had 11 kids at home and he was missing his family tremendously. He was a little kid, 10 years old boy, is like a baby. And um, he missed his parents, he missed his siblings, and he couldn't learn. He was acting out and having fun. One day he, he brought a goat to Yeshiva, nobody found it. And he found vodka, he gave it vodka, and the goat was going wild, and all the students were having a ball. And when the Yeshiva Rabbeim came, they asked, what's going on here? They all said, it's Avramel, it's a little Avramel that he did that. So he said, you did such thing, I'm going to expel you from Yeshiva. And they wanted to throw him out. And he didn't know what to do. And it was him and another friend. So two of them. And he didn't know what to do. So he came to, to the Rebbe Amarash wife, I think it was Rebbe Zarifka, and he cried to her and said, what, what should I do? So she said, why don't you come? During those times, Yeshiva didn't have a dorm. So they didn't know what to eat. So every night, every day they had to go eat by Balabatim, but different people, homes. So when it was her turn to come to their house, his turn. So he said, come when, when my husband, when the rabbi is going to be home and you'll talk to him. So he came and he was telling, uh, so, the, so the the wife, the rabbi first told him that these boys really want to come back to Yeshiva, forgive them and let me talk to him. So Rabbi Maharaj said, there's Slavotka, there are so many other Yeshivas. Why do you have to go to Lubavitch? You can go to Arishivas. We don't want you here. You made trouble. Over there, you will learn how to learn. Go there. And he cried and he said, please let my friend come. Let accept my friend. And the Rebbe Arashab said, because you ask for your friend, you have Abbas Yisrael, I'm going to accept you too. He said, I want to learn in Lubavitch. I don't want to go to Slovakia. I want to learn in Lubavitch. And because, and my father said, because he insists on learning in Lubavitch, the Chesidoshka made him alive. And that's how my father and his family, and that's how we all from. Because my other grandfather's brothers, he didn't go, they didn't go to Lubavitch Yeshiva, and his kids were not from. So I think the joy part and the fire part, rather than just yeah. the academics. And yeah, it's not only the most of do it, do it, do it coldly, but enjoy it and love it and feel it and feel the warm kite and the love in it. And that's what that's what my father said. If my father wouldn't go to the Bible Yeshiva, I don't know what the Vodiya was. And that's how we all stayed, not just from, but Chesidosh and Lubavitch. And we want to love it and we want to give it give it to our kids, our grandkids, and to our people in the community. So it's the fire of Yiddishkeit. It's it's the, the fire of Yiddishkeit, yeah. The personalization and the fact that it means something to us. So parents today, so I think like today, especially where we're so focused on academic markers and that you're saying that that's not necessarily what's important. The necessarily what's important is finding the joy in it and the fire in it and what it means to you personally. Yeah, the kids should enjoy it and love it. And when they have a good feeling about it, always want to come back to it, even they don't. Sometimes kids stray away, but if they enjoy it and love it, they know they have a home, a warm home to come home to, they will. 
So we we teach the kids, but we also give them the warm feeling that they sh- that it's lovable and enjoyable. So they should want to do it and enjoy doing it. I think that's very interesting, considering like your story where you were saying, yes, you you learned a little bit of Chumash, you learned a little bit of Ivra, but you didn't learn a whole lot like by today's standards. But you learned the love of being a Jew. You learned the love of the pride of it and the warmth of it and the the passion that you saw your parents. And that's really what what continued down the path of eventually learning more and knowing more. And I think that's such a powerful lesson. I want to touch on one other topic. Before I was a mother, I heard these stories and yeah, it was inspiring. And you know, it's it's nice to hear she, she dipped in this and they, they kept it from and they had a secret yeshiva. It's nice, it's inspiring. But as a mother, sometimes when I hear these stories, I look at them very, very differently. Like I can't imagine like motherhood is hard enough. <laughs> like it's hard. It's hard to raise your children in a comfortable way. And then to think of the layers of like, is my kid going to be safe going to to the neighbor's house at night? Is my kid going to be safe in school? Am I going to have the ability to continue to raise my kids, you know, to chuppah, you know? It's it's a scary thought process. And I wonder what you saw as a child, or maybe you've had this discussions with your mother afterwards. Like, how did your mother, as the mother of seven children, six children in this situation, how did she manage when the world felt very heavy and the world was smaller then she didn't know that there were people living joyfully and openly and how that felt like it's very isolating it was before internet before calls before you know texting before social media how did she go through that how did she go through that and find her joy i think she did know there is a world that has freedom and people could express you describe because i remember during war Six day war, 67. My father was attached to the radio and listening to what's happening in Israel. And and we were and my parents were writing a letter to the Rebbe and we were in touch with the Rebbe and she knew there is a better world out there. But I remember when my uh, when my brother was only in Yeshiva, he didn't learn any secular studies. My parents didn't let my brother go to school for obvious reasons. So all her friends, even the Jewish friends, were telling her. You can't keep him at home. He's going to be a crazy guy. He's going to be a psycho. He needs to be with kids. He needs to play. He needs to have fun. Why are you keeping him at home living all day? My mother said, don't worry. He'll be fine. My mother taught him how to read and write Russian. I mean, the Hebrew he learned in the yeshiva with the Rebbe. She taught him math. So he was not illiterate. And the yeshiva boys were his friends. There was like 20 boys in that house. That he socialized with them. And, and Shabbos, you know, more people came to our shul, to our house. He's a very successful leader in Toronto. And I know Rabbi Shmuel, nothing from Chicago, was in our yeshiva. Um, my cousin, Yisvitzchak Mishalovin, that's in Los Angeles, was in our yeshiva. There is Fratkin from Israel. There is Arthur Friedman from Israel. There is a lot of people. A lot of people were from Ukraine. Now they're successful businessmen in Williamsburg with long payers. They were in Irishiva. Otherwise, they would be like left to the street. They were assimilated with the Goyim. So I think my mother was was getting her strength from her mother. She lived then in Moscow and she lived, she saw her parents live a similar life. Also, I remember every summer we would go to my grandmother to Moscow to be for three months in the summer with her. They also lived from from a life and they had a shul in their house. So my mother was also brought up in that environment. And it, it was sometimes it was not easy because my mother would do not just our laundry, all the bathroom laundry and cook two times a day like hot dinners and lunches. 
And it was a lot on her. I remember sometimes my mother was was a lot on her. She would like, I remember it was very hot in the summer. And my mother was asking my father, we have, and there was no such thing as air conditioning then. It was like 40s. <laughs> we would sleep outside in the backyard because it was so hot in the house. And we, we weren't going to our friends. We would go and play during Shabbos afternoon, but we were not going to sleep over. There was no such thing. But my mother saw her parents were growing up the same way. They were raising her the same way. So it was like second nature. It was not easy, though. But we were living with the hope that we will go to Israel and we will leave this place. For years and years, we were applying to leave and we got refused. And one year when we got permission, I remember my brother, he was three years old and he was running around the house and saying, we got permission, we got permission. We didn't know, he didn't know what he was saying, but he was copying what everybody else was saying. And I remember we, from Russia, we flew to Moscow and my mother stayed behind to sell the house. And my father went with us from Moscow. We went to Vienna and Vienna, we stayed 24 hours and we flew to Israel. And my father got on the ground and kissed Israel when he landed in Ben-Gurion Lud. Because it was our dream always to go to Israel and to live in Israel. And this was like temporarily. We were living with the hope that we'll leave sooner rather than later. My yeah. mother was trying to get us to school later. You have to go to school when you're seven, first grade. She was trying to wait so there is less kid in school to deal with the authorities and with the Shabbos and the communism, you know. So what were you saying? I think a lot of people who today are maybe secular Jews or people who don't understand this and they're contesting, you know, the land, I'm talking about Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. I think that they're contesting like, well, maybe the Palestinian lives there, maybe the Jewish people live there. And I think that, I think that this simple sentence that you said that your father kiss the ground is mimicked by so many Jews on so many generations of so many people, no matter what their theology was, that no matter where you were and no matter where you were suffering from and no matter what the trials and tribulations, you held on to the fact that we have a, a, a place, we have a land, we come from somewhere, Hashem promised us something and, and the dream is to go back there. And we say this multiple times every single day, and the fact that your father came there, kissed the land. And I know that my grandfather, who came from Yemen, did the same thing. And he refused to leave, actually, Eric Yisrael afterwards. He never came to visit us in, in the United States. Because once a year went to Eric Yisrael, this was, you know, holy land. This was our land. And I think that, you know, first, we have to just clarify this in crystal clear words. Because sometimes the young people who are looking on social media, it, it, the lines can look a little bit blurry, you know, but I want to just be very, 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 very clear that obviously like this was, this was what people held on to for generations that one day we will come home. One day we will come home. And it's such a gift that your father was able to do that. And of course that was his first reaction. It's like a known brainer. Yeah. Because the, the longer you're suffering in Russia, the more you wanted to go to Israel, the more you couldn't wait. And for years, they refused us until when we got permission. And the minute you apply to leave, they take away your job, they take away your, you can't work. That's it. You you consider like more um, of like um, against the government. Rivka, what would you tell a young person today who feels like the world is very, very dark and the world is heavy and the world is against us and the world is, is fighting us? And almost, I think some people like, 
feel that there's nowhere to go. Like, where are we going? They like, this is like for on, on some sort of level, this is a fight for for our safety and our well being, and you know things mm-hmm. like anti semitism in New York City has gone up four hundred percent since October seventh, four hundred percent, and it wasn't low to begin with. So, uh, you know, look at what's happening in the Montreal community. What would you tell a young person today? Or even a not so young person, what would you tell a Jew struggling with these feelings of heaviness aside for, um, you know, connect to your joy, which we absolutely did say, but what, what would you tell? What would we, you we do? We, we, we all feel that it's crazy. I just heard today that yesterday at the big rally in Washington, there were like 10 buses people from Detroit, Jewish people who wanted to get on the bus to go to Washington rally, they, they didn't let them go. They said the drivers came out of the bus and said they're not driving Jewish people. So anti-Semitism is very open and it's in, if you go on social media, you see it's screaming in your face, demonstrators everywhere. It's very scary. We have to fight back. It should has shown not repeat the second Holocaust, but we believe I'm Israel high, we will prevail. We do what Hashem wants us and he will save us. It is a very scary dark feeling. And we, I think we have to educate more people. Even Jewish people sometimes don't know and they they get their lines blurred and they know what line, what side are they on. And we have to discipline, we have to educate them, we have to tell them, just tell them facts, just teach them the history a little bit. That they don't care about land. Then it's not about land. They just don't want. They don't want to get rid of the Eden. They, they don't want the Jewish people to live. Nothing to do with the land. They need a Palestinian state. They don't need a Palestinian state. It was offered to them. They rejected it several times. We just continue being strong and educate our young people. And our people should not lose their faith, lose their Hashem is testing us. We have to continue being strong, and we will win. We will prevail, as we always been. Hashem will protect us. I'm Israel High. We'll continue being high forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I remember when in Russia we had some chaser in our house, and uh, my mother made tons of food, and everybody was eating and dancing, doing the hakafas, and it was running very late, up to four in the morning or later. And my mother sent me to go to sleep because I was eight or nine years old, but I did. I couldn't sleep. I was watching from my bedroom, from the window into the living room where everybody was dancing. And there was spilling water, like real hakafas, and dancing on top of it. And I saw my father holding the sefetero and all the people behind him, like a whole caravan, dancing in a circle. And then I see my father holding the tero, and he's crying. And the tears, like, pouring down his eyes like water from the sink. And he's singing the hakafas nigan very much from the heart. My father is a very emotional person. And I was watching it, and it really hit me in my heart. Like, I saw the Messiah Snapfish, how he's crying. I knew he's crying. He wants to leave Russia, and we are in danger. We're doing all this. We're risking our lives. We're doing Messiah Snapfish. And this gave me all, like, oil to my heart to go on, to burn, to leave more Messiah Snapfish, to do more what's right, to stand against the game and like patience and perseverance to continue doing what we're doing. When I saw my picture of my father crying, not just crying, but tears are rolling down his cheeks while he's singing the the Akofasnigan from the heart. It really touched me and it gave me more inspiration and warmth to continue to go on. And I use some of this inspiration to give later to my kids 
when I was bringing them up, telling them the stories so they could do the right choices because there's lots of choices here in the free land. So they could do the right things, even though they have lots of choices. I love that. I love how you use the 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 trials that you had to really channel into the growth of both yourself and your children. I think that that's such an uplifting message to end this conversation with that just knowing that not so long ago this happened to other people in other ways or in similar ways and it's happened before and we've always been okay we've always been more than okay we've always flourished and we've always continued to grow and we've always continued to build jewish homes and to have jewish babies and to establish jewish communities and even if it feels dark and even if it feels heavy and even if it feels really, really difficult that tomorrow doesn't feel any brighter, know that tomorrow is brighter. We have been here before, we have come through this and we know what's coming. And the next thing that's coming is light and brightness and 100% Mashiach's on his way. There's no other way that it can be any other way. A lot of Eden got very strong. They got all united and started doing mitzvahs more. A lot of people start putting on film, even the soldiers and ladies start putting on lighting candles. You know, people, it says um, when you press the olive, oil comes out. So we, the Jewish nation is like an olive. The more we got pressed from the enemies, we have our oil, our Jewish neshama, our spark lights up and we want to do more mitzvahs. Why did people decide not to do put on film to come to show? We had all of a sudden person come to show never came to show. But in Kibber, all of a sudden it comes to show us a show. Says, what's the what's the occasion? I want to be in show. Look what's happening in Israel. I feel like I want to be in show. People start putting on mezuzahs under the doors, the lighting candles, putting on film and lighting buying a letter in the Torah. It's the more you press Ait, the more that's what we felt in Russia. The more we want to be Jews, the more we were pressed. And doesn't mean we want to be pressed, but the the Jewish neshama, the Jewish light, the Jewish oil comes out more. And Hashem will protect us and we will prevail. As dark as it looks, there is light in the end of the tunnel. And Hashem will walk us through it to Mashiach. Thank you, Rivka, so much for this beautiful conversation and discussion. And I think it gives us so much inspiration and so much hope and so much guidance to bring the joy in our life and to continue to connect to the joy, even in these moments that do feel dark and do feel heavy. So thank you so much for joining us here today. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's Nigan provided by Hazan David Katak. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodiessouls.com. Again, info at bodiessouls.com with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.